Hey everybody, we are super pleased to announce our new sponsor, Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. The goal? Power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes such as Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. And the best part? Marvel Strike Force just reached its six-year anniversary, which means free stuff when you sign up via our unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. Just complete each event, and you'll receive special awards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and every week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. If we have received a unique promo code for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL, M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Again, anybody uses that code, it is unique for all new users. Check it out. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Welcome to Board Games Anonymous, the podcast about board gamers in the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris. And this is Anthony. And this is episode... 261, our friend's favorite games, Wiz Wars, Kurt Covert. We'd like to thank all our Patreon backers for helping us bring you a brand new episode. All right, Anthony, we are so fortunate this week to have one of our good friends in the industry, Kurt, from Smirk and Dagger and Smirk and Laughter Games with us for his favorite games this week. Yeah, yeah, it's so cool. This is like my favorite new feature. All credit to you, because we, we were talking about how to how to do fun interviews and this was an idea you came mm -hmm. up with and I, I just love it because it's <laughs> a cool way to bring on people we know because we go to a lot of conventions we go to a lot of events we talk to people online but we've never really been in like an interview show and it doesn't really fit our format but it's true this i mean this lets us bring people on and then they talk about a game that they love which they're passionate about and it's interesting and they can tie it back to what they do and in particular this week i'm really excited because kurt is just one of the nicest most authentic people that I've ever met in the hobby, like hands down. Like I can't go to a con and not track him down for at least a 20 minute conversation. Cause he's such a nice guy. One of the first things that we kind of figure as when are we going to go see Kurt? And the other thing I think is it, it's probably already out there, but I think he's such a generous soul and such an enthusiastic gamer in the industry that I think it was not this past Gen Con, but the one before it, his whole game demoing team went out and got Smirk and Dagger tattoos. Yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. Yeah. So you won't meet a nicer guy in board gaming. And if you're at a convention, you should absolutely positively check out Smirk and Dagger games, Smirk and Laughter games, and just check out and demo them. And especially go up and say hi to Kurt, because uh, again, you're not going to meet a nicer guy in the industry. So, Anthony, we're going to talk about his favorite games in our feature review. But again, there's so much that's going on with us in board gaming ourselves. So we will be at Dreamation at Morristown, New Jersey, the upcoming convention from our good friends over there at Envoy. They do this each and every year. They really put on a great convention. You get to see a lot of games that you don't normally get to see out there. A lot of people are demoing games out there or actually teaching games out there. And every once in a while, there's a uh, industry person or so that you could, uh, you know, go right up to the meet them. It's a small convention in comparison to those gigantic mammoth Gen Con conventions. So if you haven't gotten a chance to check it out, if you are in the area, please let us know. We'd love to get a game with you. All right, Anthony. So that's what's going on with BGA. What's going on with our listeners? What's our question of the week? All right. Question of the week this week. And this kind of ties into an upcoming episode um, based on kind of some recent revelations about games that I used to hate. I asked people, what's a game you hated at first, but later came to love? And it's, I either got one of two answers on this. Either none, I don't play games a second time if I don't like them, which I 
I'll be honest, I disagree with, even though we do play a lot of games and don't always get back to them. Or two, some fun story about a game that someone really hated at first. So um, let's dive into those because those are fun. Chris mentioned the first time I learned Captain Sonar was at a con and there was too much background noise and everyone was keeping making mistakes. We didn't know each other very well. It's super frustrating and not at all fun. But playing it in the right environment with the right friends and mistakes become something to laugh about. I 100% agree specifically on this game. You and I actually played Captain Sonar at Gen Con. And while we had fun, I don't mm-hmm. think it was like this glowing experience. Uh, and two or three months ago, me and a group of friends got together and played again with the full eight players. And it was one of the most fun experiences that I've ever had playing a game. Just like yelling at each other and laughing at the other team making mistakes. And then our team won and I was the captain. So when I said the specific coordinates and we hit them, we all jumped up. It was just like, I don't, other than the time we played defenders of the realm out in Jersey, I don't think I've ever jumped up and like high fived people after a board game. And it was absolutely a turnaround on that. So that is definitely a game. Like you need to know the people kind of a situation. A couple other responses on here. David mentioned seven wonders um, because of the way he was introduced to the game. So that's a pretty common refrain. Marie Dawn mentions Arkham Horror. All those kinds of games are almost always situational. Um, Our friend Michael from a couple episodes back says, I wouldn't say love, but he really disliked Spirit Island on the first play. It was fiddly. The timing was slow. The fast versus slow actions was hard to get around. And in the end, um, having played it a little bit more and getting to know the different spirits in the group you're playing with, definitely better than it came off initially. So I think in general, people's, perceptions are going to be if a game's overly complex it's going to be a little rough the first time if it's poorly taught it's going to be a little rough the first time or if it's just Mm -hmm. with the wrong group of people if it's kind of a social game it's going to be rough the first time and i've had several of those to the point where like if i play a game in that situation i won't review it on here unless i play it again um there's a big laundry list of games that i've just never reviewed because the first play was bad and i just haven't gotten around to it again And I know that it could have just been that play. You know, it's just like, maybe it was just Mm. the group or the teach or whatever. I'll come back to it at some point. Maybe I do, maybe I don't. But it's, you have to be fair, I think, with the situation in which you learn a game before you judge it. Yeah, I think social deduction games, as you mentioned, Anthony, sometimes those games absolutely positively need the right group. And that's also going to color your experience of the game. And that actually might throw the game a little bit where, you know, again, it it is either well-deserved because a game should play well with any group, or maybe it's not well-deserved because, you know, your group does matter, so to speak. I guess the game for me that I really disliked a great deal until I got a chance to play it enough or found that right group, so to speak, was Spyfall. You know, at first you're like, oh, we're at this place and we have to ask these very inane questions because we don't want to give away any information. But at the same time, you know, we're trying to figure each other out. And that was one of those situations where people just couldn't think of something that would kind of give that information or give that clue without giving away the whole kit and caboodle. And later on, having played that with other players and especially having been the spy myself and just being able to get a couple of answers correct somehow... (laughs) And being able to pull that together was a lot of fun. So later iterations of Spyfall certainly have uh, turned my feelings around for the game. All right. So that's what's going on with our listeners, Anthony. There is so much going on. I do want to get to a new special feature that I I have that uh, you don't know about, Anthony, but I like to call it, hey, remember that Kickstarter that you didn't want to back? Well, it just added more stuff to it. Oh, don't do it. (laughs) Get away from me. So, Anthony, remember that Kickstarter that you didn't want to back? I didn't know what you're talking about. Stop it. <laughs> well, hey, Marvel United, guess what? Uh, it added more stuff to it. <laughs> I don't like this feature. Make it stop. <laughs> hey, I'm in charge of features. and, and Yeah, I'm sure the listeners are having fun. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so, look, hey. Our listeners out there are not the only ones that are going to be pulled in by our acquisition disorders. You got to be pulled in a little bit too. So yeah, they added more figures here. So let me just give you a little bit of an update, Anthony, and let's see if this actually pulls you over. So I don't know if we mentioned they added Blade. 
mm-hmm. Ant Man, oh. Wasp, nah. Jessica Jones, Meh. Venom, ooh, and upcoming as of the time of this recording, She Hulk. Oh, that's cool. How about this? How about if bad guys? How about Carnage? I mean, that's just Venom with a red paint job. So it is, but they they have a really cool sculpt. All right, all right. One last shot here. I thought this was weird when I originally talked about the game, and he was not included in the main team. Which I, which kind of you know, knowing Simon, it kind of made me feel like something's up, and it was. How about Tales of Asgard, an optional package? Which oh, you can no. pick up Korg, Don't, no. Valkyrie, <laughs> Thor, Loki, and wait for it, wait for it, Beta Ray Bill. No. Okay. <laughs> I'm unhappy. That's really cool. There you go. Yeah. 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 I knew, I knew uh. Thor was coming, but come on, guys. Come on. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll leave Anthony to the torture of seeing if he's going to back this box of miniatures and check back in with him next week where Simon has added even more miniatures. And let's see if he could actually keep himself from backing the uh, project. All right. So for acquisition disorders this week, we're going to talk about games that we want to hit the table eventually. Anthony, what do you have up for us this week? All right. So here's a game I'm definitely going to pick up regardless of cheap Kickstarter gimmicks. And that is... War of the Ring, Kings of Middle-Earth. There was like rumors about this for a while, I think going back a year or so, that there is a third expansion for War of the Ring. It's the final expansion, supposedly, closing out the trilogy of updates. And I'll be honest, I have not really played with much of the expansion content. Uh, I've played with Lords maybe once or twice, and I have not played with Warriors at all. But, but... I'm still going to buy this. It's amazing. And I love War of the Rings so much. Um, It's just I need to find a steady group or person to play this with where we can get all the content out regularly. So I'm not always teaching the game to someone. So War of the Ring, Kings of Middle Earth. This is going specifically to the whole idea of like Sauron kind of bending the will of the various kings and rulers of all the different free peoples with his manipulations and all the things that he does in the background, like the whole idea of all the rings of power and everything. So in this game, we're going to have new figures for Theoden, Denethor, Dyne, uh, Brand, Thranduil. Uh, there's also new rules for like siege battles, which in the past were just like, hey, we're in a siege now. Cool. <laughs> you, need diff- you need to roll a different number now. So it actually adds a little bit more mechanics around that, which is very cool. So there's actual siege machine figures that are kind of coming into play, which is a big part of the books and the movies, if you've seen them, where you're actually, you know, lobbing things at the walls and trying to bring them down new units for the shadow armies as well so it sounds like a lot of cool new stuff because of course it is and i'm very excited about this uh there is a rumor that they'll have a collector's edition of this version like they did with warriors and that they might possibly also have a collector's edition reprint of lords of middle earth which was very difficult to find for a very long time so I'm 100% buying this. Uh, I am probably going to wait until they announce whether they're doing the collector's edition or not, because I probably prefer that. But it's it's more content for my favorite game of all time. And whenever it comes out, it will be on my shelf. I would love for them to announce at some point that they were just doing another super duper ridiculous collector's edition with all the expansions together, just because it's such great content. It's a shame that these are all separate boxes. I wish it was just one massive thing. Yeah, I was looking through a a thread the other day, which was like various rumors that have come out over the years from the designers or the publisher. And there's rumors that they'll do, you know, the Lords of the Middle Earth mixed with this one. You get the two. So they match with the Warriors box. There's a rumor that they'll do the three expansion trilogies all together. But at no point does it seem like anybody has said or even rumored that they might reprint the whole thing together it almost seems like they really think they're going to stick to the whole we're only printing this once thing for the collector's edition, which I mean, for people who bought it, I respect that. But for me, who was not well aware of this game when that was first released, mm-hmm. man, it was like $300, $400. And now it's like 2000 if I want a copy. Like, come on, just reprint mm-hmm. it. I want it. <laughs> so... I mean, back in the day when they had the Super Collector's Edition, which is out of print and ridiculously rare, and I don't know, was it going for $1,500, $2,000 at this point? But uh, 
I mean, it seems like it's the time where Kickstarter could actually do that again. You know, they could they could actually produce a ridiculous version of this with everything in one spot. And, you know, obviously with the new Amazon series popping up and Lord of Rings never really going away. I mean, I'd back it for ridiculous amounts of money. Yeah, I didn't say I that would, out loud. It's fine. I'm fine with that. <laughs> I would gladly say I will spend hundreds of dollars if you put all four of these together and just like the super mega edition. Yeah. I would. And it's it's like the only game I could say I would do that for, like at that level. I hope they do it, but I'm still holding my breath. Well, I'm a crazy fan of this as well, and I have so much of it, but not all of it, and it just breaks my heart. So if they could get on that, I'm telling you, it'd be a big, big thing on uh, Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. All right, so for my Kickstarter <laughs> acquisition disorder this week, I was lucky enough to a prototype version of Knights and Ninjas Medieval Card Game, Gem Thirsty Dragons, Traitorous Knights, plundering highwaymen embark on an adventure full of strategy interaction and big moments now this project will wrap up on thursday march 12th 2020 now this is a very light card playing game it's a very much a take that kind of situation and as the title says there are knights and surprisingly enough they are ninjas turns out they at least according to this history, it came out about the same time. So some ninjas show up and uh, they're going to mess with some things. So basically what you're doing is you are trying to collect 10 gems before the deck runs out. And then as the deck runs out, then it's nine gems and so forth and so on, eight gems and such. So you're just trying to collect 10 gems. Not too hard because you start with five. But here's the thing. Everyone's trying to take your gems. <laughs> so you start off with a small hand of cards, and on your turn, with the exception of the very, very first player first turn, you're going to draw two cards. And then you're going to play a card. Now, you will be able to do things such as fortify. So you'll be able to protect your gems with things such as castles or archers. Or you could also attack. Now, attacking allows you to steal gems. And lets you allow to take out sometimes castles, sometimes archers, or sometimes just general people that are getting in your way. And the cards themselves will give you a general idea of what the card's able to do. So whether it's a fortify or attack or defend, or if it's a special action. But basically, you are going to fortify, attack, or take special actions. And there are also some respond cards that will allow you to mess things up, so to speak. So, for example, the trader card's always a lot of fun. Someone sends a dragon after you. Well, turns out the dragon was a trader, and now they're coming after you. So that kind of flips this, you know, the script, so to speak. There's other interesting cards out there. So the the king is kind of the big baddie, so to speak. He's going to be able to attack or respond. He's got a four strength, so to speak. That's pretty great. The ninja, which I've mentioned earlier, is really interesting because a ninja can scale a castle, take out archers, and steal two gems. Really, really fun. The knight's pretty strong with three. Then you have the soldier with two, and then the down to the peasant with one. There's a highwayman that's going to jump in between a battle, and once the battle's re- resolved, he can jump in there and be able to steal the gems that are being passed along. So basically, the game comes down to playing cards and hopefully at the right appropriate time, steal as many gems as you can from your opposing players. This seems pretty obvious and pretty simple, and it's a take that game, so you don't think too much about it. But it is damn hilarious what tends to happen in the game as far as stealing everyone's gems before they know it or having them counter your stealing your gems or having those gems getting passed around and around again or running out of gems completely because, you know, everyone thought that would be fun to just keep messing with you, so to speak. Or maybe everyone else had fortified defenses. Nonetheless, you play cards, you attack other people, you have a good time doing so. The artwork is really what drove me to this game to begin with. It's a lot of fun, very cutesy. This is great for a family or for gamers who are just kind of like looking for a quick filler. I'd like to see the cards have more information, just because there are so many different cards in the game itself. It does come with a rule book, at least according to the Kickstarter. I'd like to see some player aids, so to speak. And there are also some additional, how would you say, expansions that can come with this game. If you back a certain reward level, there's a knight's reward. 
And there is a lockup reward and an invader's reward. There's not a full amount of information on all of these things. But if you are looking for a quick, fast, light, fun game where you're just joking around with people, uh, attacking back and forth, playing wacky characters, and really enjoying some really fun artwork of Knights and Ninjas will reach its goal on Thursday, March 12, 2020. So definitely check it out. Cool. Sounds interesting. I mean... I like knights. I like ninjas. So this is what I'm saying. And they're cute. So why not? (laughs) All right. So those are the games that we want to hit the table. Anthony, let's talk about the games that did hit the table. And we'll let everyone know if those games are a buy and they should run out and pick them up as soon as possible. Or if those games are a play and they should sit down and play those. Or if those games are a dodge, they should avoid them all costs. Or if those games are the dreaded burn and the dragon comes by and burns it for the good of the village. Anthony, what do you have up for us this week? Okay, so I have been playing two specific games a lot lately, and yet somehow I've not reached the point where I can do like a full mega review of either of them because they have so much stuff in them. So I'm going to do kind of impressions and kind of my initial review, quote unquote, score, and let you know what the, what I think. And I'll keep it relatively short because, again, I haven't played through everything both of these games have to offer. But I think a lot of people are interested because they are new. Uh, So first, we have Root, the Underworld expansion. This is the second expansion for Root. It was on Kickstarter last year, just shipped. Everybody got it. And I've had a chance to play with it three times now. The expansion adds two new factions. We have the Great Underground Duchy, which is mole people. A, they have like tunnels they can dig up from anywhere they want on the map. There's three of them. Uh, So when they recruit units, they go to the burrow and then they can dig them up to wherever they happen to have a tunnel, which is great. Um, Second, they can build various buildings and those buildings give them special abilities and options to score points. And then they have various uh, different faction leaders and and people that it can put out on these cards that will give them extra actions on their turn. So based on the cards they have and the various clearings that they're in, they can show cards from their hand, place out these uh, counselors and then basically they get beyond the two actions they normally start with. They get additional attacks, additional um, movements, options to score points, all that cool stuff. So they're very flexible. They kind of remind me a little bit of the the lizard cults in terms of just they're constantly doing stuff and moving stuff around on their board, but you don't really know what they're doing (laughs) because it's so it's not convoluted necessarily, but it breaks the rules of the basic game a little bit more than the average faction. The other faction is the Corvid Conspiracy. So the Corvid Conspiracy is uh, you have these various plot tokens and you are going to put your different warriors out on the map and the way they recruit is very different. You're going to play a card from your hand and whatever the suit is, you're going to put a warrior in every clearing that matches. So up to four different clearings uh, depending on where the cats are. And on your turn you can also remove warriors from the board to place plot tokens and the plot tokens are things like bombs that destroy everything in that clearing which is amazing extortion that lets you take people's cards and then draw extra cards on your own snares that stop people from moving and then you have the ability to kind of spread out from there like a raid token that will if somebody removes it from the board it kind of does a spray effect like pandemic so this faction is all about subterfuge because you're not going to have a ton of dudes on the map because you're removing them to place these tokens. People are deathly afraid of the tokens. <laughs> they will do whatever they can to get rid of them because they don't know if it's a bomb. And the bomb only goes off if it gets back to your turn and you flip that token over. So if someone destroys it or removes it, nothing happens unless it's a raid token. So the key to this faction is to on one hand, go to places where nobody is and try to drop tokens where it's a pain in the butt for them to go out of their way to get them. And two, drop so many tokens that people can't deal with all of them. Uh, You're going to score points by flipping them. So you flip a token over and you score one point for every face-up token. So, for example, with the Corvid in my last game, I had 20 points going into my last turn. I had three face-up tokens already on the board that people had left alone and two face down tokens. I flipped the first one. I got four points. I flipped the second one. It was a bomb. I got five points. I blew everything up, took out two buildings. I got to 32 points, (laughs) like 12 points in one turn. It's 
and it's kind of on the rest of the people there to stop that from happening. But the Corvid are particularly fun, but also particularly frustrating to play because you can put all these things out and people destroy them every round and you will do nothing. You can craft a lot if you keep anything out there. But in general, if people are really on top of your stuff, it's very difficult to get anything done. So you have to be very clever about it, kind of get in people's heads a little bit. Um, there are two new maps with this as well. There's a lakeside that has a raft that moves back and forth between this giant lake to different areas. And then a mountainside that starts with several different paths closed off. You can discard cards to open them. You get points for doing that. There's also a uh, King of the Hill mechanic on that map where there's a tower in the middle of the board. If you control that clearing at the end of your turn, you get a point. It's kind of cool. It seems like a balanced thing for like cats in particular who never win this game ever. So <laughs> just give the cats some extra points. Expansion also came with Exiles and Partisans deck, which upgrades all the cards in the game uh, with a whole new deck. And they are much better than the originals. You have the Vagabond pack with different Vagabonds to play with. Um, resin clearing markers, which are completely aesthetic only, but are very cool. And I bought them anyways. And then a clockwork uh, expansion for like solo play. So first kind of impressions of this. Fantastic. I love Root. Great new content. I like both of the new factions. It's a buy if you like Root. My only downside here is that the rules are becoming a problem. We have, this is the fourth version of the rules now. And every game we play, something comes up where we look it up. And whatever we look up is wrong. And then we look it up in the new version and it's not clear enough. And we go to BGG and it's still not clear enough. And we finally find a thread from Cole Worley, the designer, who's like, this is how it's supposed to be. They really need to get on top of their rules writing because it's bad. I don't know how else to say it. It's just not good. But the game, the core game is very good. And if they can figure the rest of that out and just get it under control and stop having like nine different versions of the rules floating around out there, I am all on board. So if you like Root, this is a great expansion to pick up, I think even more so than the Riverfolk. So I, I definitely recommend tracking it down uh, once it hits retail. Second game I want to talk about, even shorter, just real quick, is King's Dilemma. This is a uh, legacy game from Horrible Games and designers Kelmer Hawk and Lorenza Silva, who, funnily enough, their other game that they created together was Railroad Inc., a roll and write game. This, however, is a legacy game in which everybody plays a different family in this kind of fantasy world. And each game is one generation. So there's a different king each game based on who won the previous game. And all the game is, is on your turn, a card's going to come out with a bit of story on it and then a dilemma. So something along the lines of, do we, you know, burn this witch at the stake or do we let her become an advisor to the king or something like that and you'll vote yay nay or you'll pass and then whatever comes of that you're gonna move some stuff around someone else becomes in charge you will open a different envelope based on the outcomes of that vote and you move up various um, tokens on the board or down on the board it is very, very simple mechanically. That's all it is. That's the whole game. You do like between five and 10 of those and that is it. But the social dynamic is very interesting. It's a lot of fun if you're playing with friends. And there are also a whole bunch of other things that come into this game down the road. There's a lot of stickers. There's things that are going to adjust the map and add things to the board. We haven't gotten to those yet. I don't know what they are, but they seem cool. So this is not a review at all. It's more of a, I'm having a lot of fun with this. If you like legacy games, if you like hidden role games, if you like trader games and voting games, check it out. Like if, you, if you're if you a fan of Sidereal Confluence or Game of Thrones, for example, this is a game you probably will like. I will reserve my own personal judgment until we get at least halfway through because we've only done three games out of like an estimated 12 to 15. But it is fantastic so far. So that is The King's Dilemma. Yeah, these are both two games that, as you mentioned earlier, does need a specific group, an ongoing group, in order to get everything straight and be able to either obviously complete a campaign or just get the rules down correctly so that you can actually play the game correctly. And that's always been my problem with Root. I, I think that if I could create a pocket universe there would be one just for root because there's just something so fantastical about the game, the gameplay and the interactions that come about. And that asymmetrical gameplay is unlike pretty much any other game out there. 
that being said, there's been an endless amount of time on our phones when we play the game just to figure out Mm -hmm. if we can or should be doing a certain thing. And especially since you do want players to study up before they come to the game, oftentimes they may study off on a different variation each. And that always becomes a problem. So honestly, as much as I do love Root and would love to be able to have that in my regular rotation, I just can't see that happening unless I had like one of your groups with like a 10 by 10. Honestly, it's the only way I can see doing this at this point is and we're again, we're on like game four or five now and we're still having issues. We had like a whole thing the last time we played about movement rules for one of the factions that we thought we all knew. And it turns out we didn't know. And whether we were wrong all along or if they just changed the rule at some point, we don't, I, I don't know. But sure, it's possible they changed it because they've changed a lot of stuff. <laughs> it's like, stop changing everything, guys. Now, it's, it's it's a challenge to say the least. And Root is one of those few games that I don't own a copy. I would love to own a copy because I would love to create a situation where it could actually get played regularly. It's just, I can't see it happening at this point. All right, so let me talk about a game that I was able to get to the table. This was something I was looking forward to for quite some time. This was a recent Kickstarter game that went up and, you know, it was one of those older games that kind of got reprinted out there in the world. And it's become the status quo that like, hey, you had that game? Well, they fixed a couple of things and they upgraded the components. Now, don't you feel silly for buying the original (laughs) version? Uh, This is Clinic deluxe edition 2019 uh should probably say 2020 because it came out you know to backers this year now if you're not familiar with albin vr games he is one of the most prolific heavy euro game designers out there uh one of my favorite games of all time is town center i know anthony you have a lot of favorites yourself right oh absolutely yeah um tramways in particular is in my top 25 i think and it's just such a brilliant game yeah that's another one that i haven't gotten to the table yet but a friend of mine mentioned they had more than one copy and was like you would probably want this and i'm like yeah i think i would <laughs> yeah no, you <laughs> and i haven't even played yet but uh 100 up your alley man <laughs> nice so uh, Town Center from Album VR has been one of my favorite games. And I remember getting that to the table. And all of his games at first seem overwhelmingly just monumental. <laughs> just seem overwhelming just from the level of complexity. But once you kind of settle into the gameplay, it all makes sense. It all flows together. And it actually feels a lot simpler than the uh, Board Game Geek rating of weight would would tell you. So Clinic is all about your thriving town center is doing so well that it actually needs a clinic to help the local residents. Now, you and your partners all get together to create this clinic, but you have different ideas of how this clinic is going to be built. So now your competitors building up your own clinic, hopefully trying to get the most popularity by the end of the game. So the game itself is, in fact, about building your own clinic. So at the start of the game, you are going to have a building area and your building board is going to have two floors, the ground floor and then the first floor. And there is going to be a main center board where you're going to be able to utilize actions. Now, The main mechanic of the game is you're going to get six action tokens. There are basically three action tokens, but they're duplicated. So you can take the same action twice in a round if you'd like to do so. Basically, the actions are, first off, build. So you want to be able to build rooms for your patients. You want to build certain clinics for your patients, certain outpatient rooms. And you want to be able to build resources and support services for them things like parking lots or a helipad so that you can move them in and out or different entrances now there is some complexity as far as where you can place things how you place things how things not only are placed on that one floor but can affect what's built above it so you'll have to take a look about some of those complexities but in general they make logical sense and i always love to see that in a board game when things just follow logically So you'll build up the special service hubs, the treatment rooms, the supply rooms, the special modules, gardens, helipads, entrances, 
conveyors, which is a little odd, but it's basically a Willy Wonka elevator that kind of moves in all different directions. I already mentioned the parking. Next action, you could actually be able to hire people. So you can hire a doctor. Now, doctors are pretty interesting because they come in four different colors, from white to red, and that represents the severity of the patients that they can serve. Obviously, when you are taking a doctor, the more that they can serve or the higher they can serve, the more they're going to cost. You'll be able to hire nurses. Nurses add either plus one or minus one to a doctor's ability. So they'll be able to allow you to cover the patient, or in this case, the cubes of that particular color. So if you have a yellow doctor and one nurse, you could treat an orange patient cube or a white patient cube. You'll also be able to take orderlies that are going to be able to help you towards being able to pay for certain things in the game because money is going to be a big thing because money turns into victory points. And finally, you're going to be able to admit people. Now, admitting people are going to be based upon which service hub they're going to need and, of course, based on the number of people. So you have psychiatric, you have heart, you have eyes, a whole bunch of different specialties. So basically, you will take three separate actions in that round. You will place your buildings and your patients and your people out there, and then you will move them to the appropriate area for treatment and care. This is really interesting because how long it takes your patients, your doctors, your nurses and such to get to the places that they need to go to, by the end of the game, you will lose points based upon how much time you took up. Very interesting mechanic in the game. Now, once everyone gets to where they are, you will be able to treat the patients. The more severe they are, the more money you'll be able to make. If there's a garden nearby their room, two extra bucks for you. And after all of that, you will have to spend money from the money that you made in order to pay your entire staff. And then you'll have an opportunity for cleanup. And then finally, you'll have an opportunity to spend the money you made that specific round for victory points. At the end of the game, which comes in round six, you will gain victory points based upon the doctors and nurses that you have available, based upon what rooms you built that time, and you will lose points for having patients who are still sick in your clinic that never got treated. Now, I want to mention that I'm not going to give this a full review for two reasons. First up, the Kickstarter came with a full expansion of a number of modules. Now, while Clinic itself is a complex, heavy game, I never felt that the spatial elements of putting the rooms together was so complex that I couldn't hack it just by easily looking at it. But the expansion and also the additional modules that come in the base game really does add to the complexity. Not that it's too hard, it's just there's a lot of little rules as far as where you could play certain things, how certain things react to certain other things. That being said, the modules are super cool. For example, there are things like zombies. I don't know why zombies are here, but there's a whole mechanic module here where zombies get into your clinic and bad things happen. But on the other hand, there's something simple like having fire extinguishers that'll give you points in the game. There is hospice care in the expansion box. There's just a lot of different modules in this game that if you did own a copy of this game, and if you did get a chance to play it a lot, I think it would be hard-pressed to be able to play everything or get bored of it at some point. I was hoping that I was really not going to like this game because I did not back this on Kickstarter. And begrudgingly, I gotta say, I really like this game a lot. You know, it does a lot of things without ever feeling overwhelmed. It does have some challenges as far as, as I mentioned earlier, adding the particular modules in and then remembering certain rules as far as how things kind of work. But basically, you take an action, you do one of three things on the board, you do the thing on your personal board, and then hopefully you have enough patients that match the doctors, you score money, you take the money, you score victory points out of it. Really, really don't be scared of this game. I was, and I'm telling you, it's not a thing. So for Clinic, the Deluxe Edition, at least an initial review before I get all of the modules in, I'm going to give it a buy. It was really a fantastic experience. And even though the game did take quite some time, I never felt overwhelmed, tired, or bored of it. You beat me again. You did it. 
Um, this is this is what I actually backed because again, Album VR is one of my favorite designers. Um, every single game of his I've played, ta- Town Center, uh, Card City XL, uh, Tramways, I've loved every single one of them, and this one just looked like it was in that ballpark. Um, I have set it up. I have played it solo, like multi-handed, so I do kind of know the flow of the game, and I feel like I will really enjoy it. But I have not had a chance to get it to the table yet with a group, and your review just makes me want to do it that much more. So here's hoping in the week ahead we can do make that happen because <laughs> it's just yeah, it's such a cool mechanic. Like the idea of you know you build up this machine and you generate whatever revenue you can. And now you decide, when do I buy points? When do I not? Do I jump ahead? Do I sit back and wait so I can go first? Do you want? To, how do you want to manage that? I just really look forward to kind of exploring that. I didn't get into too much detail because, again, there's a lot of nuance to the game. But the really funny thing is, whether you take a doctor, nurse, orderly, or even a patient, they come in a car. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the cars. And the cars get in the way of you building, you know, buildings. So you have to manage the parking lot as well. And with this deluxe edition, you get these super, super nice little miniature wood meeples for practically everything with exception of the patients, which are still cubes for some reason, but that's neither here or there for the moment. But uh, managing the parking lot in this game is just, again, another little fun moment to it. And again, Please don't let the complexity rating on Board Game Geek kind of throw you. This is something you could certainly play, at least at the base game level, and then move in the modules as time goes on. All right, Anthony, that's everything that's hitting our table. Let's get on to our feature review. For our feature review this week, we are talking to one of our favorite friends and talking about their favorite favorite games. Right, Anthony? Absolutely. Yeah, this is uh, one of our favorite new features. We get to bring on people that we know from conventions and gaming and life and talk about their favorite games, game experiences, gaming influences. Today, I'm really excited because we get to bring on Kurt Covert from Smirk and Dagger and Smirk and Laughter Games. Uh, Kurt, welcome. Thank you. Engage with each other many, many times over the last I don't know, six or seven years that we've been going to conventions. It's always a pleasure. Well, it's delightful to be here. Awesome. So we wanted to bring you on a because we again, we always enjoy our time, you know, playing games and learning about what you have coming out um, when we visit at, you know, Origins or Gen Con or PAX or wherever we happen to see you. Um, But at the same time, you make (laughs) Smirk and Dagger games is very much, you know, it says it in the title, what kind of games you make. So I was very interested to hear kind of what your favorite games or influences are. And uh, kind of how that's in, you know, shaped the type of designer and the company that you put together. Cool. Well, so I know normally the straight up question is, what's your favorite game? And that is an impossible question for me. <laughs> so, um, but I think you phrased it nicely here because certainly there have been some some games that have really formed uh, who I am and who I became as a gamer. Uh, certainly, I think like a lot of people. Dungeons and Dragons uh, was was very big with me. Um, I was uh, I was a drama club nerd, so you know we would we would play D anD D all the time. In fact, uh, wow, back in the eighties now, right? So this was uh, early eighties, and my D anD D group was you, you pretty unique at that time. Um, it was me and six women. Oh wow! <laughs> oh wow! It was uh, it was a, a wonderful group. It was very story driven. Um, it was uh, about relationships and you know the actual story of the adventure. Um, and of course, that all changed drastically when I got to college and played with a bunch of dudes. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Which, by the way, that that culture shock was the was inspiration for Cutthroat Caverns. You know, when I finally realized the DM has nothing. I, I don't have to fear the DAM. I have to worry about these guys next to me. But in any <laughs> case, so D&D won. And then um, I think one of the games that I played very, very early on that um, really highlighted the fact that I, I loved backstabbing kind of game style was Tom Jolly's Wiz War. Ooh. Yeah. Are, are you familiar with the game? Yeah. I actually picked up the most recent edition with a good number of, of its expansions and i remember going this seems familiar i never actually saw it at the table but it had a long history and lore to it and when they reprinted it 
I picked it up and just found it on BGG and just the the length of you know history and how you could play it and how to mix the cards together and what the right combinations are and everything and it was just it was a different experience that was like from way back when but it was really relevant today well you know it's interesting i i think it really is a game of its time as well there are things about the game that you know the reason that fantasy flight redesigned some of the rules was Mm. because they felt it wasn't going to appeal in its old form to a modern gaming audience sure but honest to god i i don't love those changes (laughs) i I really love the original game, despite all its, you know, you know, warts and bumps. Um, there was something so uh, undescribable about this game. For those who have not seen it or played it, you are one of up to six wizards um, racing around a, a maze of a dungeon. And they're represented by these little square boards with different paths through. And you have to bring two treasure chests home from other people's boards onto yours, but you can only carry one at a time. So while you go over there and uh, they've left to go rob someone else, you drop, you, you pick up their treasure, you're racing back to your home base, you're trying to drop it, then someone's taking yours and you might have to go blast them in the face to take your treasure back. And it's this crazy push and pull, spell, counter spell, seal someone behind a wall, just like all kinds of horrible, wonderful things that happen to uh, to you and your friends that have, have you like raising your fist, cursing their name and having a blast. And that was my first exposure to like, you know, true take back style gameplay. Um, this is, by the way, the same game that Richard Garfield got inspired by too. Um, uh, I think a, a lot of that spell counter spell that, uh, that was, you know, in this game was something that uh, he took away from it as well. Mm. It's an absolute blast. And this was back where you printed a game. It was printed in one color. It was like a a sepia tone. Mm. He hand assembled it in his garage. A lot of them, they were on little parchment pieces of cards and you had to cut out your own tokens. I mean, you could never, (laughs) you could never publish a game like this anymore, but, um, but man, the, uh, the joy of what's what was in the box and the the experience and the high level of player interaction, I just loved it. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's a fantastic game. I played it myself where it's, and as I mentioned, like BGG, they were like, oh, this is how you separate the spells and each wizard has his specialty. And then someone else was like, nah, just put everything in one deck and just throw <laughs> stuff at each other the entire time. <laughs> yep, that's great. Yep, that was that was one of the things that uh, Fantasy Flight tried to tried to add to it, and and I totally get why. Um, <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. It, it, it just got in the way. I thought so. Do you still play like the original edition? I know they're like up to version eight or something, right? I I was I was living hand to mouth. Uh, I was out in California working in the film business, working from job to job, and the twenty dollar cost of this game, I like you know bit my nails to like you know should I do it? I don't know. Should I? And so I still have that original version of the game from the eighties. Um, though what I've done is there are so many fans they've added like their own like you know um, revisited cards like the their own graphic art they've done. There was a guy who was making a dental stone um, large boards that you could actually plan with removable walls, and I mean mm. so. So I ended up, you know, grabbing one of those from him. So, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I think I, I think I, I picked up the fantasy flight, fantasy flight version and I, I use their tokens and things, but I, I use the, the, all the original stuff. Awesome. So you mentioned, you know, D and D kind of had an initial early um, influence and Wiz War, of course, obviously had an influence on um, uh, Cutthroat Caverns. What are there any specific things, obviously running around stealing each other's stuff, that's a specific enough thing, but anything in particular that just had to be in that game or ended up in a later game, um, kinda as you got going in the hobby? I often credit Wizwar as being the inspiration for for what Smirk and Dagger stood for for 14 years. That whole, you know, stab your buddy in the back and have a good time doing it and curse their names and all of that, that that came as a direct result that I realized that I, I loved this emotionally in, involving, uh, deeply immersive, high player interaction game style that games like Wizwar were able to generate at the table. 
And um, so when I was going to start my own company, I said, you know what, I, I need to stand for something. I was also a marketer and I, I wanted to like, you know, have a mission statement that meant something. So I decided, I'm, you know what, this is probably the game I can do best or games like this. So I planted my flag and became Smirk and Dagger Games. And the first game that came out of me declaring that was was Hex Hex, which was uh, my first game. It was it was a kind of mean spirited um, bell counterspell kind of a game, but without a game board, it was just cards going around the table and um, you know hexes blowing up in people's faces. So um, I think I think even Hex Hex had um, you know like Magic the Gathering took things from the board game Wiz War and and repurposed them, uh, taking, in Richard Garfield's case, he, he had a different spirit uh, that came out of it. Uh, and I clung to the the actual spirit of what playing cards in Wiz War is like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, this is how I felt playing the game. <laughs> oh, that's great. Awesome. So I know you have uh, kind of the two sides of the company now, the smirk and dagger and smirk and laughter. And we talked about this before, you know, we hopped on, you actually have a couple of projects that you're working on one for each side. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about those? Oh, sure. Yeah. So, um, the deadlies is coming, um, in the middle of March, I think March 11th, it'll be in stores. It's a very small portable card game. Um, uh, the deadlies is designed by Paul Saxberg, who, uh, is over at Roxley games. Actually, he pitched me this game and I just fell in love with it. Um, it's, it's, it's based on the seven deadly sins and, uh, you've got a handful of cards that are all, you know, got these cute evil little animals on them that represent each of the sins. So uh, pride is this, you know, very prideful looking unicorn and um, uh, wrath is a very pissed off bunny. And, you know, <laughs> so uh, in any case, uh, all of the suits have these really uh, thematic effects, but the general idea of the game is you are trying to get rid of all the cards in your hand as quickly as you possibly can. And of course, everyone else is using the effects on the cards to load you back up as much as possible. It takes place over uh, the course of, well, essentially like three rounds a person. You're, you're trying to empty your hand three times over. Uh, each time your hand gets smaller. Um, and when you do it that last time, that's when you, you actually win. But it's very approachable. Um, it will remind people somewhat, uh, lightly mechanically, almost like, Uno, if you can yeah. imagine Uno yeah, yeah. would be like more interesting, people will say, oh, you know, I get it. It's kind of like, but the fun of the thematic, the various things the cards do um, really tie in nicely to the, to the sins. Uh, like I, I love, uh, I love the, the suit for, for lust. Uh, lust is obviously kind of a hard one to do in a game that you want to be kind of, you know, available to everybody. But <laughs> this thing is, uh, it, first of all, it's got this, you know, uh, little demonic tomcat on it uh, as you know, representing lust. And what you do is you you pick a partner at the table and they get to choose what happens. So it's consensual. <laughs> so either A, nothing else happens. You played your card, you're done. Or B, they can decide that we're each going to be able to discard a card. <laughs> and each player that discards a lust in that way forces the their partner to draw three cards. So now it's a trust exercise. Um, and it's, uh, it's just, you know, it's just a, a great 20 to 30 minutes of doing terrible things to each other. So obviously that is the smirk and dagger version. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you can definitely feel it. It's funny describing it. It did yeah. sound a little bit like Uno, but like with that special extra twist. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yep. So, so Kurt, those, uh, those college kids playing D and D with you really scarred you, man. <laughs> It's literally in every game. <laughs> yeah, they did. It's true. Yeah. Well, you have to. You have to understand. Yeah. Now, when 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 I was playing with my friends uh -huh. from high school, um, like if you found if you found a magic item, if you found like you know some uh -huh. holy sword, like whoever could sure. wield it best, they would they would they would have the honor of, of holding it, right? <laughs> like it was that kind of thing. We were a Tolkien esque you know, one for all kind of a party. <laughs> so I get to college and I'm, I'm playing with chaotic evil assassins and they get 
they get an NPC that like the the DM's favorite NPC that they brought in from another game, <laughs> and they figured, you know what? Let's draw. Let's get them really drunk. So. And we'll we'll dr- that rock grub we we discovered earlier today. We're gonna drop it on his eye sockets. Oh god! And I'm like, oh my, oh my god! I was like, literally horrified is what at what I was watching. And so was the DM. And and so they they figured, oh, we we run this game now. And I'm like, oh my god! <laughs> yes, I absolutely scarred. And just recently playing with them again on roll twenty. <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. You're still going at it. So now when you produce games just in general that has a little of their flavor, has to be like legally distinct. Like they're in there, but just uh, in case. That's great. But uh, all right. So yeah. oh, and then of course the the other game going over to the smirk and laughter side, that is something after well, after 16 years, this is the yeah. first time I've actually dipped my toe into Kickstarter. And we right now have live a game called Cinder. Which is, uh, it's a spoof on Tinder where you're an adventurous, you know, character, uh, like in a fantasy realm who has decided, yeah, I want to date dragons, but I don't want to get burned doing it. (laughs) So on this side, this would be a shout out to your original group that was all about cooperation and getting along and maybe even finding love in a D&D realm. Yes, indeed. (laughs) Yep. And, um... It's a it's a fun uh, push your luck dice game style. Um, it's got uh, cards that help mitigate that luck because you're taking that uh, dragon on a date at a specific location, which will end up changing the way your dice go. And if you if you completely bomb out, maybe there is a spark uh, that gives you a little bonus. Uh, maybe you'll get a second chance card that allows you to mitigate your future dice rolls. But um, the the cool part of the game is that, and this is something that. Uh, uh, the designers uh, Ben Walker and Harold Michaelitis uh, really, really wanted to make sure was the case. There are obviously lots of different ways that you can approach dating in our modern society. There are multiple paths to victory. It does not have to be monogamous. It can be poly. It can be you know just kind of one one date and done just lots of different people it could be you know um there's all kinds of different ways that are successful dating strategies in it um and you are setting your dating profile by choosing a fantasy character pick and everything from like a medusa to a paladin to whomever you like uh you fill in your name and a pronoun a like and a dislike and it kind of invests you in the character and then you start choosing um, attributes that actually are meaningful for uh, for your compatibility and, and your dice later. So as it relates to treasure, are you more of a hoarder, a spender, or an investor? And you're going to circle one of those three traits. And you do that across four traits. Well, when you finally decide, you know, uh, you're going to swipe right and take a dragon off the app deck, flipping it over to see how compatible you are, you're going to match those attributes. And the better you match, you get better dice uh, that are uh, weighted for better odds, so more love than uh, fire. And again, it's push your luck. You're going to have a date over three different phases. Um, you know, you're going to meet up. You're going to take the next step, and if things go well, you can take it to the next level. And um, you're rolling, hoping to get lots of hearts. But if you roll three fire, you're burned, and that didn't end well. And the dragon goes off back to the dating pool. So. Um, it is, it's a delightful, fun, uh, silly game where people quite honestly, they get into their characters and they role play these dates a little bit, which is, which is kind of fun. I think that's, that's the most fun of, of, of the game is actually really investing yourself in it. That's fantastic. Yeah. It sounds really interesting. Yeah. You said it's up on Kickstarter now, right? Yes. Yep. Um, and it's called Cinder and that's without an E, um, almost like grinder spell. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that campaign will wrap up on Friday, March 6th. So if you'd like to check it out, check it out now. Indeed. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on, Kurt. This was a lot of fun. It's always great talking to you, but even more so kind of getting a peek behind the curtain of, of kind of where it all started. Indeed. Well, thanks so much, guys. I appreciate it. Take care, Kurt. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. All right. So that's everything for this week. Until next time, this is Chris. And this is Anthony. And we'll save you a seat at the table.
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.